This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Shana Tova to all our listeners. I hope everyone had a meaningful Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, started Tavshin Pei Dalid. 5784, according to how we've been counting the years for a long time, the right way. We're about to enter the holiday of Sukkot, which is exciting. I've already built my sukkah. Uh, I hope you guys are ready. It's a great uh, way to decompress after the intensity of the month of Elul and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that we build ourselves some clubhouses, we move in for a week and we just kind of party every day. It's also a way to practically manifest or to think about practically manifesting a lot of what we speak about in the tefillot on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, uh, this idea of the world accepting the oneness of the Creator and His kingship, you know, how do you practically do that? And uh, one answer might be, through the story of Sukkot. And, you know, the story of Sukkot is kind of hidden. You know, most of the festivals on our calendar have a story that's directly associated with that festival. You know, Hanukkah, we know the Maccabim. Um, Pesach, Yitziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt. It's actually literally, the literal translation is the exodus of Egypt, but we say the exodus from Egypt. That's a long story. Maybe we'll discuss it more in about six months. But Sukkot seems to not really have a story associated with it uh, at first glance. But if we look at the Haftorot, it's very clear that the story associated with Sukkot is actually the War of Gog Magog, this cataclysmic war that is prophesied to take place at the end of days when Israel's already back in our lands and international forces try to come against Jerusalem and find out. The plague that's described by the prophets actually looks a lot like what we today know to be a nuclear war. So it's uh, quite dramatic. And uh, there's an opinion that uh, perhaps this is the way. Uh, The story of Sukkot, this war that hasn't taken place yet, is actually the way to bring humanity's awareness to the oneness and the kingship of the Creator. And uh, it's actually a very interesting opportunity. We learned from our sages that our ancestors, like Avraham and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka, Yaakov and his wives, they celebrated Pesach, for example. They, They kept the Torah without the Torah being given. They lived Torah, it was their nature. And we learned specifically that Avraham ate matzah on Pesach. So the, the idea that Avram ate matzot on Pesach generations before we left Egypt, before the historical event occurred that would be the ostensible reason why we today eat matzot on Pesach, it's very interesting. I would argue that we don't celebrate the 15th of Nisan because we left Egypt on that day. We left Egypt on that day because the 15th of Nisan was already a holy day. There's a unique uh, divine light that shines into the world on that day, just as on all our other festivals. And sometimes, um, you know, and, and the historical event that's meant to be associated with that day, you know, sometimes comes sooner, sometimes comes later. But either way, those days are determined to be holy, unique days way before the historical events actually occur. And and we're experiencing that on Sukkot, meaning just like Avraham ate matzot on Pesach, we celebrate Sukkot, even though the war of Gog and Magog didn't happen yet. So uh, that's something to think about going into Sukkot. Um, and uh, I'm wishing all of our listeners, of course, a Chag Sukkot Sameach, a Chag Simchatenu, decompress 
from the experience of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, uh, but also celebrate this future victory of Israel over our enemies. Now, um, it's no secret that the cultural conflict within Israeli society has been heating up. You know, the last several months have seen a lot of fighting ostensibly over judicial reform legislation, but uh, I would argue it's really about something deeper. It's about the identity of the state. What is the state going to be? What does it mean to have a Jewish state? I, I think these are questions that have gone unanswered for too long. And uh, now, this past Yom Kippur, I'm sure most of our listeners know, several tefillah services that were organized for residents of Tel Aviv were disrupted by protesters. And one of the organizers of one of these uh, tefillah events that was disrupted is a friend of mine, Shanna Fold. She's had me on her podcast several times. This is the first time I have the pleasure of inviting her onto this podcast. So Shanna was one of the organizers of uh, Tefillah service in Tel Aviv that was disrupted. I'd like Shanna to share some of her experiences and maybe talk about what she thinks it means. Shanna, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on the show and talking about history as it is being made, as it is being laid out in front of us for the Jewish people around the world and here in Israel. This is a very important conversation. Thanks for having me on for it. Happy to have you. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what happened? First of all, you're part of an organization, Tribe Tel Aviv, correct? Yes. That essentially organizes Jewish experiences and events for the Olim in Tel Aviv, those Jews who've made Aliyah from other parts of the world, primarily English speakers who are residing in Tel Aviv. You create social events, Jewish experiences for that community, correct? Yes, absolutely. So I'm running Tribe Tel Aviv with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. And uh, we also have a community educator. Her name is Alana Langer. And um, so we're running this group of Olim Chadashim, a community. And our goal is to help people that have come to Tel Aviv to live, uh, get a network, get connected, meet one another. And we do a variety of programming, including religious services and social events, networking events. We do tours. We do Shabbat dinners sometimes. And uh, we just have this vibrant, beautiful community of people from all four corners of the earth joining us on a weekly basis. That's great. And this past Yom Kippur, you organized a Yom Kippur tefillah for your community where? So we had a Yom Kippur prayer at Kikar Habima, which is, um, there's a huge theater in Tel Aviv and there's a big plaza in front of it. We, you, one could, one could call it the Lincoln Square or the Lincoln Center of uh, Tel Aviv. And we have been there for about three years doing outdoor programming. It began with COVID when we wanted to be able to do our prayer and for everyone to be able to do it comfortably without being worried that they were getting sick. And the city has supported us. The city of Tel Aviv has supported us by giving us chairs and giving us the space. They kn knew that we were going to be there. Um, and this, this I think, was our third year doing it. Can I tangentially push back on you for something? Like, like sure. <laughs> we're so early in the conversation. Go, go ahead. Yes. It keeps grading on me. And I know I feel like a lot of our listeners expect me to say something, so I'm going to say something. 
Um, this word you keep using, you keep saying prayer, prayer, prayer. I don't know if you noticed, but I avoid that word. I'm going to share an idea that I think might shift your perspective a little. You tell me if it does or doesn't. You know, prayer is really a Christian thing. Jews don't do that. I would say prayer is in many ways the opposite of tefillah. You know, prayer, when you think about it, it seems to be the act of communicating with some kind of deity in order to shift its perspective, right? Like, I want this, please give me that, you know, kind of talk to a deity and hoping that he'll go and do what you've asked for. Whereas um, the Hebrew concept of tefillah, what we've been doing for thousands of years, is much more reflexive. It's actually about changing ourselves to line up with the will of the Creator. So I, mm. I, in many ways, the concepts of prayer and tefillah are polar opposites. One is about trying to change God's mind to want what I want, where uh, that's prayer, whereas tefillah is about kind of growing and changing myself to want what Hashem wants. So whenever somebody comes in the show and uses those words, I mean, it's all part of a larger decolonization process the Jewish people are going through. You know, a lot of us come from Western countries and our our frameworks, our like ideological paradigms are very much shaped by the societies we grow up in. So I think that, you know, part of this experience of decolonization, which includes Aliyah and includes uh, a whole bunch of other things, I think really requires us to rethink a lot of these concepts. Like when we engage in Jewish stuff, Jewish ritual, whatever, we, we should be, you know, thinking, am I am I doing like a Jewish flavor of a Christian thing because I grew up in a Christian society, or am I doing something that's like uniquely mine that belongs to my people that my ancestors? Sure. So certainly I like what you're saying and I, I love that you bring in that perspective because we grew up, you know, the one, especially those of us who grew up in the diaspora, we grew up in, the, in taking these things on and not even knowing how they've infiltrated our lexicon and our being. But I will say that I very frequently use the more Christian or the more Western words because I know that my listeners are... Um, I have a lot of Christian listeners. I have Muslim listeners. So I always tend to not assume that people know what tefillah means. And because and and I know that a lot of uh, Jewish speakers, preachers, rabbis, they're so used to speaking with um, the Hebrew words because they're speaking to a Jewish audience. But um, especially in the work that I do with Olim, I'll, I will t I will admit this. I've been very involved in Jewish, the Jewish uh, life my whole life, and it took me a very long time to even know what the word tefillah meant. I recently learned the word tefillah. Hebrew has never really truly been a part of my life, and um, and so it's just interesting. I've also had people contact me and say, "Why are you?" People are confused that I'm calling Olim Chadashim immigrants. I, I talk about immigrants, that I welcome immigrants to my home, that I am running programs for immigrants, and I have a lot of backlash. I have a lot of backlash, and I have a lot of confusion um, because people don't, because there there is a difference between just being an immigrant and being a Jew who's returning to the land of Israel, but we don't have English words for those. So um, so this is a very interesting conversation. Right. It, it, I mean, it, it's a tangent. I know it's my fault for going down it. I just wanted to bring it up because every time you said the word prayer, something w was triggered in me. 
And uh, but but there are a lot of these words, you know, when we try to um, when we try to clean, I would say our relationship with the Creator and our Jewish practices and the ritual component of our culture, the of our people, of our ancient practices, it's important to kind of like clean them. Uh, by the way, another word that I would challenge is probably God. You know, I think that that has a lot of very Christian connotations that are different from the Hebrew understanding of the Creator. A long conversation. It's not really what I brought you on the show to talk about, so I don't want to get too lost in the weeds on that. Uh, but back to Yom Kippur, you've been organizing this Tfila event for years in the same place with assistance from the city of Tel Aviv, from the municipality. And what was different this year? So this year, people were out for blood. Um, this year, sort of from, wow, so many things are different. First of all, there was some kind of a lower court ruling that was upheld and reinforced by the Supreme Court. And apparently that reinforcement happened if I'm pretty sure it happened on Sunday and Sunday evening was Sunday evening was Yom Kippur. So let's just start with the fact that I feel that there was an anti-Semitic attack on the Jewish people on the day of our most sacred one of our most sacred days. Well, what, and, well, yeah. what was the legislation? What was the legislation that was passed that you found anti-Semitic? No separation in public spaces. There shall be no separation of gender in public spaces. We have to tell our listeners the context a little bit. I mean, for thousands of years, part of the way the Jewish people have done things, especially tefillah, especially in Yom Kippur, is to have separation between men and women, meaning it's not something we just came up with last week. Absolutely. It's not something we came up with last week. This is how Jews pray. This is how Jews pray. Now, it's it's really funny that this attack was on somebody like me because I'm quite pluralistic. I am a liberal New Yorker, you know, so so the fact that people were targeting me and putting me and, you know, basically calling me a settler, an out of towner, a right winger, and they did ha had no idea who I was or, you know, so it was it was really just sort of shocking. But um, we've been we've been doing it like this for years and an important note and a, a, a Christian friend of mine said this to me, I was having a conversation with her about it, um, was that we we did have a separation of gender, um, but it wasn't super clear. It was, as Rabbi Feldman and I called it, a suggestion. So we started off with a mechitza. And by the way, it, these laws were really not clear. We got the permission from the city. If the city did not want us to have a mechitza or they didn't want us to use their chairs or they should have contacted us and told us what was what. Nobody told us anything. Um, it wasn't clear to me. Rabbi Feldman had absolutely no idea that the city had had made an effort to have the Supreme Court reinforce this this law of no separation in public. Um, and again, it was a suggestion. We didn't tell people what to do or how to do it. People assigned themselves. People seated themselves according to gender. It's what they're used to. A Christian friend of mine said to me, um, so she said to me, so what you're telling me is that you made, you tried to uphold the rules of modesty. You created a separation and then you had people attack you and you had grown men come and get into the personal space of women. 
And so you're telling me that they wanted to remove your mechitza and that not only did they remove your mechitza, but they infringed upon the modesty and personal space of women. And that is absolutely true. That is absolutely how it played out. We were attacked while we were in our tefillah and we had overwhelmingly men in their 50s and 60s getting in the faces of and in the personal spaces of women. And the whole point of the mechitza is to protect women so that women can can have their space and can pray without the gaze of a man or without you know being brought to a thought that isn't a thought that one might want to have while you are supposed to be you know in your in your time of tefillah in your time of prayer right so th these people can, so first of all there's the city of tel aviv the, the municipal government of tel aviv passed a law essentially outlawing traditional jewish tefillah like the way it's done like, like meaning yes. not, not, okay that's in public in public spaces meaning that you could still go to the synagogue and do it the jewish way yes but in public spaces not and then the supreme court went and reinforced this right yes and then and and i imagine between shabbat and yom kippur the type of people who are really just in the mindset of yom kippur aren't following the news that closely i can't absolutely say Right. I, I can't say I check the news that much on Sunday because it's like right after Shabbat, right before Yom Kippur, and like there's so much to do and so much to prepare for, and there's travel and whatever. Could um, not agree with you more. Could not agree with you more. Who is looking at the news when you're preparing for the holiest day, one of the holiest days of the year? Right. So, so then there was clearly a coordinated effort to disrupt several Tefillah events throughout Yom Kippur. Is that correct? It wasn't just yours. Correct. Correct. That, so then what happened? These guys came, they took the mechitza. So we were having our tefillah. We were shortly in. Um, we were just about making it to the Shema, I would say, um, which is early on in the program. And a man came through, a couple of men came through. One of them walked around um, the ladies. He entered in the middle of uh, where we had the mechitza and he grabbed it and he screeched it. He pulled it away and it screeched across the pavement, making a very loud, you know, shocking noise for the people that were sitting and and uh, in the middle of their program, trying not to say prayer. They were praying um, and bring that mechitza out to the side. Uh, I approached just instinctively I approached you know I people said wow you were so brave that you approached those guys and I said brave like somebody hold me back right I they're disrupting your event like you're responsible you're you're in charge absolutely absolutely I'm in charge these people are infringing on our program they're threatening our people I walked over to them and in my best Hebrew I say what are you doing this is not nice. We are in the middle of a tefillah. And they told me that they didn't care. Um, actually, those guys wouldn't look me in the eye, which I thought was interesting. Those initial two guys wouldn't look me in the eye. And I said this, um, I said this, and I'll say it again. I really thought that there would have been some kind of shame as this, you know, young woman, I'm all dressed, I'm in my holiday best, I'm approaching them, I'm in a, in, you know, forest, strictly, but gently telling them this is not nice 
I thought that maybe they would knock it off these guys, but um, really they they then stood back. Once the mechitza was gone, Rabbi Feldman came over to me. He said, it's okay. We don't need it. Leave the mechitza to the side. It's not important. Fine. It's not important. We left it. It's kind of important. I mean, maybe he just made the call that it's not worth fighting with them over. But the mechitza is important. Well, he told me that for the outdoor public space, it it wasn't rabbinically or it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't as important as it would have been at an indoor setting. This is my understanding of it as a non-Torah scholar. Either way, he was making the choice to avoid confrontation, to like not have conflict with these guys, let them take the mechitza, we're going to continue doing our thing, L let them have their small victory and hoping it would end there. Yes, absolutely, yes. Okay, so go on. So I, I came around. Um, I was really watching these guys because I didn't trust them. They made me uncomfortable and they were there to intimidate. And um, I, I, within a short time, we were, we were ambushed by, I would say, upwards of 50 protesters that came on bicycles. It was from one minute to the next. It really felt like an ambush. From one minute to the next, I had a bunch of people swarming in, putting their bicycles in the middle of seats, really so close. I mean, I don't know how I held it together. So close to our young ladies in the front row. Um, they were just, before I knew it, chairs had been taken up by protesters. And by the time the entire event was over, they came in with whistles. They were whistling over our prayer to drown the rabbi out. They were yelling. They were screaming profanities. One guy looked me in my face and cursed me out. Two people, actually. Two grown men made eye contact with me and cursed me out. I asked one of them, I said, is that the mouth that you kiss your mother with? And he said, yes, it is. And these, these, the, you know, these people had their faces scrunched up. Their faces were twisted, mouths were twisted, hatred in the eyes, everything. You could you could so easily tell which, which person had come for the prayer, for the tefillah, and which person was there to agitate. Just by looking at their face, I want to refer, they looked like like hungry hyenas in a valley. Like, let's, you, some Lion King stuff, okay? Um, that's what it looked like. And I just think that that's important to note. Yeah. So there is like a real pathological, emotional thing happening with these protesters. Let's not lose sight of that. And maybe it's important to try to understand that. Like, what do you think is motivating them? What are they afraid of? What do they hate? What do they think they're attacking from their perspective, if you had to guess? I'm just going to repeat things that I've heard. I'm a journalist. I'm not going to speak for them. I'm going to repeat some sentiments that I heard. I've heard sentiments like religion is you know, religion is private and public space is for all. And we are not going to have our city taken over by the religious. This is the secular beacon of Israel. And we do not want these displays of religiosity. Um, I've heard ideas of uh, I've heard people say that the religious is taking over the country. And this is our last holdout is Tel Aviv and now it's being taken over. People accused us of being settlers from out of town who were coming to missionize. Some of these sentiments about being out of towners were spilled over into our community wrongfully because there was a larger 
program at Kikar Dizengoff, just about five or six blocks away, with some 2,000 people. And the organizers of that, some of them are from Tel Aviv, some of them are from out of town. Our organization, Tribe Tel Aviv, we're all Olim in Tel Aviv. Those right. are some of the ideas. Okay. And you explain to these people that you're Olim, that you're living in Tel Aviv. They heard that or not? Unfortunately, just like the bullies that they were, the more information that I gave to them, thinking that it would clarify things, the more that they used that information against us. So after they understood, and whether it was from me or whether it was from our um, our roll-up poster that said our title, I don't know, they actually proceeded to say, go back to where you came from. They said that they wanted the Americans to go back to America, the French to go back to the front to France. They said, we do not want you here. The state of Israel does not want you here. We don't want any of your chaga from out of this country. Um, and you are not welcome here. They accused many of us of not even speaking Hebrew and that we should come back when we are fully enveloped in the language of Hebrew. So many of those things are off right there. And I just want to repeat that these were messages that people said to the group, but people also found me as the leader, approached me personally and made made it a point to tell this to me in my face. Wow. So um, I, I think you're more or less correct. I, I agree with your assessment, but uh, I, I think, I mean, I'll put it in my language because, you know, just like concepts like prayer and God, I think words like religious and secular also kind of play into a very um a very western framing i don't think that's right and so binary yeah uh, i think that when looking at israeli society i find it much more helpful to kind of get rid of things like right left religious secular liberal conservative i think those those labels have very very deep connotations um they, they have very very deep meaning in Western society because they, they're really part of how that civilization developed, whether we're talking about Greco-Roman thought, Christian dogma, the transition between feudalism and capitalism, like those words really mean something in the West. I think in Israel, they're, they're used incorrectly. Uh, often what's called right in Israel might be called left somewhere else. Um, religious and secular is not really kashur, not really uh, relevant to, to the way we live, to, to our culture. I would say it's more helpful for me to look at Israeli society like according to the tribes, the tribal identities of the people of Israel. And each Hebrew tribe, like when we think about the 12 tribal identities, they all represent kind of a different type of Jew. And I think each one could have a you know Torah observant expression and a non-Torah observant expression, but they're different type of personalities, different type, like, like I would say Yudah and Yosef are like the main leadership tribes in within our people, Yosef representing um, those who are really good at managing the material world, economics, uh, building armies, building economies, managing states, you know, and really looking for our place amongst the nations, like in the international order, and, and kind of looking to the dominant um the dominant civilization of any given generation for like moral and ethical cues whereas yuda represents more what's different about us not what we share in common with other nations but what's unique about us what makes the jewish people different and i think that this 
conflict within Israeli society is really a conflict between the force of Yosef and the force of Yehuda. And I, I think there are, of course, extreme expressions on both sides. And what, what I perceive to be happening is uh, Yosef created the state. I think Zionism was a very Yosef type of movement. Um, it was very successful. They created a Jewish state. Tremendous achievement, one of the most monumental achievements of the last 2,000 years of Jewish history. But they see this demographic danger. They see that the forces of Yehuda and its satellite tribes have had more kids, um, seem to be growing in power, seem to be growing in influence, and uh, they're afraid. They're losing their country. You know, the country they created, it's true, they're very westernized. They're often the elites of the country. They're, you know, they, we're talking really, um, when you talk about this protest movement, we're, we're really talking about like the wealthiest and most privileged sliver of Israeli society, um, afraid of losing its privilege, afraid of losing its power um, because they didn't have enough kids. But there's a real fear there. There's a fear of what this country is going to turn into. And, and I think they're afraid that we're going to turn into a Jewish Iran if they're not careful, if they don't start fighting. Yes. Against. Yeah, I think that that is a, a real fear. And, and I think it's something the other side needs to address. I'm I'm clearly on the other side. I'm clearly in, in the Yehuda camp. But I think that that, that it's important uh, for us to know like what drives him. It doesn't mean we shouldn't fight back. I think that in the situation you were in, you know, had I been there, maybe I would have fought back more aggressively. I don't know. I wasn't there. But I think that it's also important whether or not one fights back aggressively. It's important to understand why they're fighting, what's motivating them, and to see that that they're really expressing that they're really. They, I, I first of all, I don't think the group that disrupted your event necessarily represents the broader protest movement. I think most of the people who've been protesting every week against the government probably did go to a synagogue with a mechitza and did Yom Kippur the way they've always done it. Like, I don't think that that's something that's changed, um, but the maybe more extreme elements really decided they're going to disrupt Yom Kippur and make Yom Kippur a terrain of struggle, which I actually think was counterproductive for them. I think they probably turned off a lot more people who were somewhat on their side. Absolutely. My, people are saying that in my community. They're saying, we used to, I am, People came to me, they said, after this experience, I feel more right wing. Now we are talking about and you know, what I wanted to say to you before is that I think that my community is on the line between Yehuda and Yosef. That's why we live here. We want to both be in society and be a part of the technological growth of the country working in high tech, but we also are spiritually connected. And want to be part of Jewish history. And we want to be a part of Jewish history. That's why they're here. That's why they left. All of these people are working professionals. All of these people are sophisticated adults that come from societies and left probably very high paying jobs, high, high value networks to come to Israel and be a part of the state. So those protesters really did not do their homework. They came with vengeance and they actually what they did was they created a group of individuals who might not come out to support the Supreme Court. They might actually become more religious. I'll tell you this. I'm going to be praying harder. I'm going to be praying out in public. I'm going to be speaking about God more in public after this experience. I don't I, I am I am different now. I am different after this experience. 
it I, was a really hard experience. It sounds awful. I uh, I definitely hear you, and I think maybe maybe the community you represent really represents what I would call the best of Yosef, almost like the Zionist generation. Meaning, these are people who, on the one hand, are totally connected to the Western world, might be living their lives in a Western ideological paradigm, in a liberal ideological paradigm, yet at the same time are connected to Jewish history enough to make the decision to give up their lives, give up whatever success they had in the diaspora, and come be a part of building the Jewish state. So absolutely, and so are spiritually connected to Hashem. These are these are people that consider themselves religious and whatever that means to them. So if you're willing, I'd be very happy to organize an event for people from your community uh, who are interested, where maybe I come and, and talk about where we can go from here and, and how we can play a productive role in actually finding a place where we can both be participating in Jewish history, feel spiritually connected to the Creator, and connected to the traditions of our ancestors, while at the same time being connected to the international community and you know where the world is right now. You know, and, and being that bridge, because we need that bridge. That's what I feel to be missing. I know like last week I had lunch with uh, Jonathan Pollard, and one thing I said to him, I said, one of the things you, that you'll notice about this country is the Israelis who are most connected to our identity seem to be the most provincial and out of touch with the outside world. And the Israelis who are most aware of how things work in the world, politically, diplomatically, you know, economically, uh, etc., seem to be ignorant of their own identity and culture. And what we really need is a critical mass of Israelis who are both connected to Jewish identity and Jewish purpose and are knowledgeable of how things work outside our borders. And your community might actually be that potential bridge. Not only might we be that potential bridge, but every tech company today has one of us. Every mm -hmm. tech company has an American from New Jersey who speaks perfect Hebrew and speaks perfect English and has connections to some, you know, someone who's doing something similar in Silicon Valley or in New York City. And they are valuable money makers to so many of these people, so many of Israeli, um, you know, company owners and and startups in Israel and it's very frustrating. I mean, anytime that anyone is ostracized, it's frustrating. People were using tropes like, I joined the army. What did you even do? People said to my community. One person said, I fought in the Lebanon war. What did you guys do? And I turned around to him and I said, they weren't even born yet. <laughs> right. You know, so just the the othering you what did you do who are you we're all playing a role in the growth of this nation and it would be nice to not be used and objectified for it but celebrated for it in all of the different in all of the different forms and functions that each individual plays into our larger society right no, no i think that uh, this has gotten extremely polarized and it's clearly only escalating and I think the judicial reform legislation was really just a trigger for a much, much deeper, you know, friction in society. I would argue that that almost every political or social issue that's hotly debated in Israeli society is an expression of this tension between Yehuda and Yosef. And and I think that 
we, we need that bridge. We, we need that bridge. And I think your community might be that bridge. For sure. Um, it's definitely something that we need. And people are still, even several days after this event, scrambling to figure out and make sense of what happened and what we're supposed to do next. And people are not really willing to let it go because I think that people know how severe and how impactful this is and um this and and people anyway so we do need this event we need i i don't think that we need an event as much as i think that we need a cultural shift i think that we need a campaign of love which i am working on what's a campaign of love we need to see signs and get symbols that we need to love each other and we need to make space for each other and um you know, we all took refuge in a nearby synagogue when we were being attacked and ambushed by these protesters, um, which by, by the end of our, I'll just finish the story here. By the end of this um, mass ambush, um, I found that all of the seats that we had put out for our community had been overtaken by protesters who were sitting down leisurely and just throwing out mean and mean words and negativity to any person that looked in their direction. Eventually, we Rabbi Feldman said, we're here to we're here to engage. So let's get into a circle and um, do some Torah study. So we got in a circle and we spoke. And as we were speaking, we were a few minutes in some protesters saw that we were still there and they wanted to continue to antagonize us. They stood near us while we were in a circle of Torah prayer, Torah study, Torah discussion with our rabbi, a mixed gender, by the way, circle. And they chanted Demokratia at us. One, albeit one of the protesters told the other guy to knock it off that we were having a, a discussion and, and it, it did stop. But I mean, the fact that that chant started was so misplaced, so out of touch, so far away. It was just absolutely shocking. And um, and then they rifled through our prayer books. They were picking apart the pamphlets that we had that had English translations inside. They accused us of being uh, missionaries, mm -hmm. which was really upsetting. You're trying to spread like Jewish identity and Jewish tradition among Jews. I mean, yes and no, we're, we're there for ourselves. Whoever wants to join us can join us. But yeah, it's like you said, being a missionary is when you go out and you try to get somebody who's not in your faith to come to your faith. So even that whole word has so much power behind it. So we finish this and we, we, we need to wrap up because it's just become uncomfortable for us to even sit in a circle. And we all need to finish what we're doing for the opening of the holiday, Kol Nidre. We go to a nearby synagogue that was beautiful, by the way, a synagogue of French Olim, which was a beautiful synagogue. You could tell that French people were running it because it was just it was it was gorgeous. It was well kept um, and it, it had a lot of finesse. And I went downstairs into a room. It was a really large complex and there was a sign on the wall that said um, Kol Yisrael Yesh which I interpreted to be there is everyone in Israel. There is a place for everybody in Israel. That's how I interpreted it. It was exactly what I needed to see to dispel the darkness that I had just experienced, especially being told that I'm a foreigner in this country and I need to get out.
mm-hmm. you know, while I can really, I, I can definitely understand the, the visceral emotional pathology of those who disrupted your event. I think what troubles me more, I, I, it's harder for me to understand the Jews online trying to justify the behavior in social media because I right. see also among Olim, I see like Olim posting in defense, like obviously like Tel Aviv Olim posting in defense of this action and comparing your event to like, what if the women of the wall came to B'nai Brak? And it's not the same thing. Not at all. It's very, I mean, it's very frustrating what is what is happening here. Jews trying to have an expression of their prayer outside. And I couldn't agree with you more about how I expected that after this event, the entire country would would be in support and would be saying things like that was so not nice. We don't we don't appreciate that. We condemn that behavior. In fact, you have a leader like Yair Lapid, whom I, I don't even need. I don't have that many, you know, feelings about him. I was shocked to see that he referred to the people that came out for prayer for tefillah as messianists he mm-hmm. refer he's he sided with the protesters and so many people are siding with them i went out i went salsa dancing on tuesday night um just a testament to who i am on on sunday night i led a tefillah for olim Khadashim. i prayed my heart out I did shacharit in the morning on Tuesday, and then at night I I went to go dance bachata and salsa, and I was I was dancing with a guy that spoke that mentioned it to me, and he and as soon as I said that I was out there having the tefillah, he immediately came to the defense to 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 support the protesters immediately. He didn't even need to hear the story. Well, that's a separation in public spaces. You know, I've been secular my entire life. And that's just not right. You can't, you can't be out there. And it's just like, what do you mean we can't be out there? We are Jews in the Jewish state praying on Yom Kippur. If there is no place for Jews to be out in the square praying in an orthodox manner, where in the entire universe can we do that? Do I need to go back to New York City to be able to do that? Um, so the defense, you know, and it's just sweeping. I really thought I was going to have support. The only people that are in support of me are the people that were actually there at the tefillah who saw what happened. Everybody else is ignoring the nuance of the story and just jumping to support the protesters. And it's been really, really disheartening, which is why, yes, we need an event. Yes, we need a campaign. Yes, we need education because this is not going away. I think the first step is really some kind of conversation maybe it could be something small but uh, but i think there needs to be a conversation with people who really feel something needs to be done something needs to change and just kind of brainstorm ideas of what we can do in the positions we're in where we're situated in life what we have access to what we can do to be the kind of change that this country needs absolutely 100 and that's i think the only i think the only beautiful thing that came out of that terrible disruption was a feeling in people's hearts that okay we're here we're a part of this country and now it's our time to work and me and this is our country and uh it's time to get this place into a shape in which we have an abundance of brotherly love and you're hearing 
you're hearing secular people talking about the destruction of the Holy Temple and that the reason that the Jewish people had a destruction of the Holy Temple was because we weren't being nice to each other. And you have people talking about that, um, which I, which gives me chills. And I think that it's it's actually really awesome and really cool that people here today are looking at it, uh, whether they're religious or not religious or whatever they identify as, and saying, oh, we've been here before. We've seen this before. We don't want to go down this road. And we need all of those people who have any semblance of that feeling to come out and find each other. Yeah, 100%. So, uh, Shanna, before I let you go, why don't you tell our listeners uh, where they can find you, where they can find your podcast, and uh, any work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me on for this discussion. As many people as possible, we need them to hear this message. We need them to know what happened, not because we need to slam, not because we need to speak Lashon Hara, because we we need to bond. We need to come together. We need to bind together. So I'm really happy that you wanted to talk about this because it's just not getting enough attention. And um, I want everyone to join me in this campaign of love I am a journalist. I have a show called the Israel Daily News Podcast. I've been running it for more than three years now. And I do a daily roundup of what is going on in the news in Israel, 10 to 15 minutes. I go through all the papers in the morning and I pick out the top five stories coming out of Israel. Um, I give the news. I rarely give my opinion. Uh, Every show ends with a song from an up-and-coming Israeli, Jewish, or Arab artist. And... um, yeah, I'm I'm also writing for the Jerusalem Post. I've written for Haaretz many times in the past. And um, I encourage everyone to it, listen to my full account of what happened on Sunday. It's horrific, but it's important that everybody know. And, um, and to keep listening to the Israel Daily News podcast. Israel News is world news, and it's important that everyone should know what's going on. So if you have 10 to 15 minutes a day, you should listen to the show. Okay, great. Shanna, once again, thank you so much for joining me. And if listeners are interested in checking out the show notes of this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 105. Wishing all of you a Hag Sukkot Sameach. Hag Sukkot Sameach. Thank you again.